slept a wink I walked the floor from nine to four In between I drank Black coffee Hello everybody and welcome to episode 57 of So Important, the interview podcast. We are nearing 60 episodes and I am pretty darn excited about that. But right now, I'm really looking forward to this episode as I am talking to one of the world's preeminent coffee experts, Dr. Jonathan Morris, and we are going to talk about coffee. Its history is rich, and we're going to explore that and talk about how coffee became the global phenomenon that it is today. Some of that history is not pleasant, but it's part of the story, and it does deserve and needs to be conveyed and understood as well. Dr. Morris has written two books on coffee history, one of which, entitled Coffee, A Global History, I'm just now completing, and I can't put it down. And he works across the world to preserve and spread the history of coffee. Dr. Morris is also the co-host of an absolutely fascinating podcast entitled A History of Coffee, which I highly recommend. I'm excited about today's conversation, and it's not just because of the multiple cups of coffee I've consumed to get ready for this interview. And that's true, by the way. (laughs) Let's go ahead and get started. And first and foremost, Jonathan, let me welcome you to the show. Thanks very much. It's, It's great to be on. It's great to have you. And can you tell us a little bit about what led you to focus on coffee as part of your academic endeavors? Sure. I started out my career as a historian of modern Italy. And in Italy, I rapidly realized that I was going to have to switch from tea drinking, which of course I did as a natural Brit, to coffee drinking because coffee is really what you get. That's what you should drink. And that's where all the life happens in Italy. You know, I wanted to enjoy the coffee bars. I spent about, you know, the first half of my career working on Italian history, teaching Italian history. And as I was doing that, I was working in London. I saw the opening of these new style coffee shops serving the kind of espresso-based beverages that I had been consuming in Italy, but I hadn't seen in Britain before. So I kind of filed that away in my head and thought this would be interesting to kind of, you know, to study at some point. And luckily, at a certain point in my career, I got a grant that enabled me to do a project on the history of the spread of Italian coffee, which I called the Cappuccino Conquests. So we looked at the, you know, the development of espresso and how it spread around the world. And from that, I really have increasingly become, as it were, a coffee historian rather than a historian of modern Italy. Well, you have a number of activities beyond the academic role in uh, spreading the word about coffee, don't you? Yeah. Well, one of the great things about working on coffee was that I realized that to understand this, I needed to talk to people in the industry. And coffee is a very welcoming industry. People will come and talk to you. If they see that you're interested, they'll talk with you. They'll give you their thing. I found in doing interviews, you know, all I needed to say was, tell me about your life in coffee. And then I'd stop the tape after about an hour or whatever, because that's about the time it would take people. They would just be so passionate about it. Gradually, those contacts started coming back to me and asking me to do things with them. And I think this is, you know, connected with the fact that as we've discovered, understanding the history behind your coffee does add to your appreciation of it. And it adds something to your understanding of what's going on and thrilling and sort of getting behind the industry. And then I was contacted, as he kindly mentioned, you know, by a, a podcaster who specializes in content around coffee, who knew there was such a thing. He and I started working together on the series and the history of coffee, and it's really taken off. I mean, I'm, I'm 
delighted by the fact I get correspondence from all around the world where people say, you know, I've read your book or I've listened to your podcast and we want to know more. And so it's become a way of really communicating, which for me as a historian is great because it means I'm not just talking to, you know, the other six people who do my subject, but actually talking to a large number of people and making history relevant to them. I want to pick up on something you said. Why do you think coffee is something that engenders so much passion? Wow, what a great a great opening question. I think it's because the more that you start getting into coffee, the more you realize that there is behind it. One of the themes that 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 I talk about is, you know, for a long time we sort of the, the the goal of coffee and the first sort of history of coffee was about getting coffee to be literally an everyday good. What has happened, I think, in the past sort of 30 years or so is that we've got a bit more into thinking about coffee as a, a kind of a premium good. So we've become more discriminating about coffee. So we're not just thinking, oh, I'm going to slug down my coffee. So yeah, what does this coffee taste like? What does that coffee taste like? Why are they different? And of course, as soon as you start getting into that, there are multiple routes you can go down. Which type of preparation do I like? Which type of processing of coffee do I like? What's different from this region to that region? There are enormous numbers of rabbit holes that you can fall down. So if you're in any way nerdy or if you're in any way interested in history or if you're interested in geography or you're interested in the physics or the engineering, all of these things come into coffee. So it's remarkable how much goes into just making your little cup. Let's step back a little bit and give people some context here. And let's go to Ethiopia and Africa and wonder if you could just talk a little bit about some of that history. I mean, what we know about coffee, coffee, particularly the, the plant that we most use grows wild. Most of the varieties of coffee, in fact, grow wild originally in Africa, in particularly Ethiopia and uh, a little bit of the surrounding areas. We know that around the 15th century, sometime in probably the 1450s, we have the first sort of records of coffee being consumed because it's a record of coffee being traded in the first instance. Coffee begins to be imported from Ethiopia into what would be modern-day Yemen and is being used by the Sufi sects and by religious uh, groups in Yemen as a beverage that they use originally in their religious ceremonies and that gradually becomes transformed into a social beverage. And of course, that's really important because, as we know, this is uh, we're talking obviously about the Islamic religion uh, in which alcohol is banned. So coffee becomes illicit, a possible drink to, to use, and that becomes a drink around which you can socialise. So the spread of coffee starts with this adoption in the sort of the Islamic world of coffee as a beverage. We call this coffee species Arabica. That's because although coffee was growing wild in Ethiopia, about a hundred years after it started being imported and traded, we know it was planted in Yemen. Uh, in the mountains of Yemen for cultivation purposes. So that's, whereas, you know, Ethiopia is the origin of coffee, Yemen is the first place that coffee was cultivated and the first place that coffee, as we know it, was consumed as a beverage. And how did it get from Ethiopia to Yemen, in, beyond the story of the that you just told? The distance between Africa and Yemen is really not that great. It's It's not much more than the, the the English Channel at the at the narrowest point. So actually, in terms of trading, that's simply not that difficult a passage. 
what happens is that we have a, a set of traders, which we believe is probably organized particularly by uh, the so-called Banyans uh, from Gujarat, who were trading up and down the Red Sea, up and down the, the Gulf of Arabia and around the Indian Ocean. And they're linking up with the spice trade, with these various things, and they begin to take on their voyages the coffee product. They are the traders who are bringing that in. The story goes that it started being adopted because they used to chew cat, which is a another plant which has um, psychoactive properties. And there was a shortage of this cat in Yemen. And one of the Sufi leaders uh, supposedly said to his followers, well, I've, he had made trips to Ethiopia. And he said, you know, try and get some of this stuff because we can use this as an alternative. That seems, according to the first real manuscript that we have on coffee, to be the most plausible of the stories that we have as to why coffee began to start being imported. It's, it's in Yemen and it's growing yeah. and it makes its way to Europe. Okay, so originally it makes its way to Europe. So Yemen comes under the influence and, and the Arabian Peninsula comes under the influence of the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Empire is uh, based in Turkey. It's the Ottoman traders who start bringing it into Europe. Now, all of the trade at that point passes through a port which is called in Arabic Al-Makir, but which of course becomes known to Europeans as Mokka. And that's where we get this whole notion of mocha and coffee as mocha. Uh, the European trading companies, so those East Indian trading companies of the various nations, used to pick up their coffee from mocha because it had a complete monopoly on it and ship that coffee in. There is several problems with that. That's a limited supply. And at various times, the Ottomans try to manipulate that supply. And they certainly make sure that no one can take coffee out that isn't already dried and isn't therefore not, uh, is impossible to use as seed plant. The Europeans, therefore, for the first sort of period of the 17th century, are always drinking coffee coming by this route. But as demand grows in the early 18th century, so those European East Indian trading companies want to find alternative sources where they can up the supply. And so that's when the Europeans managed through various ruses to get hold of plants and seeds and begin to plant them in their colonial possessions around the world. So the breakout, if you like, there's about a hundred year, there's about, no, it's about 60, 70 year period where Europeans are drinking coffee, but don't control the source of coffee. And thereafter, they begin to bring their own coffee by planting into their colonial territories. So this is the period where you see coffee houses rising in Europe. It becomes a social thing. Uh, it becomes political in some ways. Some people are, 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 you know, are, are concerned about that, but nonetheless, coffee is growing. There's this desire to export it. And is it fair to say that that's where the story gets a little bit messy? It's fair to say that's where the story gets a lot darker, a lot darker. So you're right, the initial thing in Europe is very much the story of the coffee house and the coffee house being a kind of a democratic institution, often modeled really on the on the Middle East and, and Turkish coffee houses. The sort of the a place where lots of ideas are exchanged, a place where really, you know, a lot of business is done. But obviously, as coffee becomes popular, as we say, there's this point where where the Europeans look to 
trade coffee for themselves. They take coffee and coffee, we should say, can only be grown in tropical areas. It cannot be, you know, coffee cannot survive frost, but at the same time, it cannot survive great heat. But so the planting of coffee, the Dutch take it to their territories in East India, Java, uh, so modern day Indonesia, essentially. And then it comes to the Caribbean. The Dutch put it into what is called modern day Suriname on the South American coast there. The French and British and Spanish take it to their respective territories in the Caribbean. To cultivate that coffee, they use enslaved labor. So at this point, we have the growth of the plantation and the use of enslaved labor as the way of producing coffee. How many slaves were involved? Well, we can't put an exact number on that because we don't really have those numbers and we don't know, we can put a very rough number on how many enslaved people crossed over to the Caribbean or over to the New World, and that's probably something like 12 million. We don't know how many of them were used for coffee as opposed to used to work on sugarcane would be the obvious one because sugarcane was, the, was the, the biggest and the most profitable of all the commodity crops. But what we do know is that there were some territories in particular that became specialists in coffee production. And the most leading one of those was the French colony of Saint-Domingue, uh, modern-day Haiti. That is where we see essentially coffee becoming a crop that almost equals sugarcane in its value for the Haitian or for the, the Saint-Domingue economy. And it is where, of course, we see the first and the only successful revolt of enslaved people against colonial rule. Um, so Haiti uh, overthrew as it were, the, the French and established its own independent republic in 1804. That unfortunately did not enthrone Haiti as the world's leading coffee supplier, but actually did the reverse, partly because lots and lots of coffee farms were destroyed during this very long process because the revolution takes from sort of 17, uh, the, the revolution begins in, in Haiti in 1791. The colony does not declare independence until 1804, and the Republic takes a long time beyond that to fully settle. One of the uh, points that you brought out in your podcast was that th these slaves who were coming over, I just want to go back to that for a second. Yeah, sure. They really were commodities, weren't they? The, one of the things that I read while I was doing the research for this book was uh, is, is a book which is essentially written as a guide for coffee production by a man called Laborie who had a coffee plantation in Haiti. And I would say that the thing that most struck me was that these people were regarded as livestock. And in many ways, they were treated worse than livestock. You know, when they arrived, uh, when they were, were purchased, they would be what they called hardened. So for the first two weeks, they would make them basically induce fever in them so that ever, all the kind of diseases that they might have been or all the things that they might have, have picked up at the sea were expelled by this sort of awful process of, of being seasoned, as they called it. They were then subject to all kinds of discipline. I mean, the essentially in the way that plantation societies work is fear, absolute fear. This guide had a whole section about how to tie the knots 
on your whips and how to whip your enslaved workers. In the name of making good coffee. In the name of making coffee and of getting work of getting work done. You know, I mean it was as as it's something that we all need to probably face at some point in our lives. And I have to tell you that my full understanding or my understanding now of what happened under societies where we we had this in slavery it's something that's really difficult to come to terms with i'm going through the same thing as i think about this a lot these days yeah. it is a very troubling part of history and you also talk about ecological aspects yeah. from the coffee growth the next phase is really the the move where we see the kind of industrialization of coffee coffee becoming an industrial product this really takes place with the expansion of one nation and that nation is Brazil. Brazil becomes the world's leading coffee supplier, but not just the leading, I mean, it's just the overwhelming supplier of coffee. And the way that this is done is simply that the Brazilian settlers push back and back and back into the virgin countryside. They go to uh, an area, they burn down all the trees, they plant coffee in the ashes of those trees. They get good coffee for about 20 years or so because it's fertile. And then as the fertility of the soil erodes, they simply move on and destroy the next bit of forest. And, and those are some of the again. greatest forests in the world too. Absolutely. This obviously has huge echoes of what we now see going on in the Amazon. This is actually the last manifestation, but think how much has been destroyed <laughs> before we even get to today. It's incredible in terms of what it does. And of course, once you take away all that, if you like, the kind of, you know, the biological diversity, the environment, the shade quite frequently because the, the coffee was planted unshaded, you destroy that diversity and you destroy the sort of the, the biological reservoirs that we have. Well, I, I want to talk about today and what steps we can take as consumers to address, you know, some of the uh, conditions that still exist. But but before we get to that, uh, you had mentioned something that was next on my list, which was the move toward major industrial production of coffee. What happens with the industrialization is we see the start of the bit of the industry of coffee roasting and of the kind of branded coffee products. So in terms of the roasting, we see a sort of a move to this in the mid-19th century. And the first sort of big roaster, uh, and the most of the big roasters really in this period come to be in the United States because the United States becomes the first big market. So we see people like Arbuckles who start in uh, Philadelphia and produce brands. The uh, most famous brand is probably one called Ariosa. And they advertise, in fact, on this way. And it says, you know, they show sort of, you know, a housewife saying, oh, I just can't get my coffee right. It just says, well, you know, stop worrying about how to roast your coffee. Let us roast your coffee. Then it will always be good. So it's a, it's a sort of, you know, taking away the consumer agency and making them dependent on the idea that, well, we've done all the work for you. And that really is what begins push the industry as coffee becomes a branded good and a product away from just being something you buy loose at the grocery store. And there's a very sort of, as I say, it's a symbiotic process almost between the growth of the US as a mass market and the growth of Brazil as the number one producer. In the early 20th century, Brazil is producing 80% plus of the world's coffee, and it is shipping 70% of its coffee to the United States. So we have this kind of, you know, uh, relationship going on there. And the heart of that relationship 
is that the Brazilians keep down the price of coffee because what they can do is keep expanding the volumes of production and the states can keep growing as a market as long as the price of coffee is relatively low. So that's the sort of the mechanism by which coffee becomes such a widespread good. The branding that you talked about with, yeah. and I guess that also includes Hills Brothers and others. That Hills Brothers, uh, Folgers, all of those guys. Folgers, yeah. of course. Yeah. Brands that are still around today. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But Maxwell that has. branding and that instant coffee that eventually came and that that's kind of how we what we spread to Europe. The American sort of super really food conglomerates by that point start coming in in the 50s and they come in on the back of, as you say, soluble coffee, instant coffee. In the case of Britain, which is uh, Britain, as we, as we know, is uh, usually a tea drinking nation. But in the 50s, we became much more interested in coffee. And the reason was the growth of this so-called instant coffee. So the soluble coffees. Uh, so Maxwell House was a classic of that. The Maxwell House was, I think, a swanky hotel in, in whichever state they were based in. And um, they thought this would be the good name to brand the coffee with. So I got to ask, because I read that and I've heard you mention that yeah. a few times in other interviews and things. Wasn't there any reaction to the taste? It's not good stuff, right? Well, that might be why instant coffee did well in countries like Britain that didn't have a great deal of sophistication in their coffee market. Instant coffee is much less popular in markets, in other European markets, for example. So um, you wouldn't find it so much in Italy or Germany or France. But I mean, what I would say about that is also instant coffee quite frequently started incorporating a new species of coffee that started to be grown in this period, but became sort of much more commercial. And that's a coffee species called Robusta. And Robusta is it's a slightly more hardy plant, particularly in terms of its disease resistance. A lot of Arabica growing areas in particularly Asia and Africa had been wiped out, and they were replanted with Robusta. And a lot of the former if you like, the, the kind of the late colonies held by the Europeans, so the West African ones, for example, began producing Robusta and continued to produce even more Robusta after they went independent. So places like Ivory Coast uh, developed a big market, obviously, in France. Angola uh, developed a big market in Portugal. These Robustas are cheaper. They obviously traded at a discount. Now, when you're making instant coffee, which as you so delicately pointed out, really doesn't often taste that great. But of course, one of the reasons is you can use Robusta coffee to do that. That's what they did, use Robusta. So in terms of market resistance, it's not as big as you expect because of course, there's the other thing about what people put in their coffee. People who chuck milk and sugar into their coffee are obviously in some senses changing the whole taste of the beverage. And if you put sugar in in particular, then you're kind of counteracting the bitterness of the Robusta. I think that part of what is going on is a rethinking in people's heads or a re-understanding of what coffee actually tastes like, particularly for those who've not tasted coffee before. That becomes the taste of coffee. That that makes perfect sense. And, you know, I've, I've been lucky in my uh, job to get to travel a lot. And I always uh -huh. come to places like the UK or parts of Asia and get served this instant coffee. And, and now I have an understanding of, of where that came from and why that's the case. So yeah. I appreciate that. Well, I, I'm just going to say you want to watch out when you go to Italy, because they will, if you go and stay in Italy in your hotel, 
they will ask you if you want an Italian style coffee or an American style coffee. Your American style coffee is going to be instant. That's exactly right. That is exactly yeah. right. Well, so this really gets us to the to the modern age. Coffee is now a global phenomenon. You you have this so-called third wave of coffee, yeah. right? What's your take on that? Well, as I said, I think that the key to that is that it's a repositioning of coffee. The whole point about instant coffee was it made it very simple for you to make and you kind of consume it without really thinking that much about it. You put on your kettle or your pot of water, make your coffee, it's done. The point about the third wave, which really I think actually I prefer to think of about what I would call spe the specialty coffee era. Uh, the point about that is really to change the way you think about your coffee and to start you thinking about coffee as, as I say, a premium beverage, maybe a lifestyle beverage, and to think about it in the way ultimately say we might think about wine. You know, there can be multiple different terrars, there are multiple different blends, et cetera, et cetera. So that's always been the kind of aim of specialty coffee. That movement began, I suppose, that certainly the name specialty coffee began in the States. That begins with the smaller roasters in the States and some of the industry veterans thinking, well, we're never going to compete with these big guys on price. We've got to do something different. What really makes it take off is that era, which is, of course, we could define simply as the Starbucksization, as it were, which is what I would call the, the growth of the international coffee shop format. And that's all based around espresso beverages. And those espresso beverages, you know, are things that you don't, you can't make at home. You know, there's a huge difference between if you went to a cafe and got an instant coffee and if you go to a cafe and get an espresso beverage, because essentially you could have made the instant coffee, but you can't make that espresso beverage. And uh, we can talk exactly about why that is. But the simple point is that uh, unless you've got a large amount of money, you can't have an espresso machine. But by showing people the value of their beverage, here's this big, flashy machine that does all these kinds of things and makes beautiful noises. And then I produce all kinds of weird and wonderful concoctions using all these different forms of milk. I can charge you for that. And if I charge you for that, I can throw in some other services that you think are free, but actually I've charged you for, which are, you know, I might have a nice interior. I might be a nice place to sit around and you could meet your friends. You could come and bring people over, which is all fine within the coffee shop, because as long as you pay a nice premium for your coffee, the whole business can work. That begins that second era. The second, yeah. Yeah. The so what what is now known as the second wave. That has its own reaction where some of those people who had started off down that specialty route, well, let's get back to the coffee. You know, let the, let's not go so much on the format. Let's get back to the coffee and what we can do with the coffee. And that's when I think people start trying to market you coffees the single origin coffee. So instead of a blend, which is the classic thing that industrial coffee does, it tends to create a blend and then market that as a brand. The single origin people are saying, listen, this is actually, you know, you taste this from Guatemala and this from Ethiopia and that from uh, Sumatra, you're going to get three very different taste experiences. And they're therefore adding value by giving you diversity. It's like, let's give you lots of different experiences rather than one that you always associate as coffee. So in your mind, what's next? Well, there are all kinds of things going on with coffee. First of all, I think what we're having right now is 
a better exploration of one of the weirder things in coffee, which is processing. So one of the big differences in coffee, and one that you would probably be able to discern if you if you try the difference, is between coffee that's been processed so-called naturally and coffee that's been processed by what we call washing. Uh, washed coffee tastes much smoother. Natural coffee is more fermented and it has more sort of juicy and tangy tastes to it. We're now doing all kinds of variations on that processing, creating all kinds of, of um, sensory experiences around that. In the way that, for example, if you think about the way that, say, wine is, is you know, we can change the wine or even more perhaps whiskey by the different casks that we put it in or by the different ways that we ferment it. This is now happening with coffee. I would say that the other thing that we're seeing is a beginning of a thinking about, well, how do we respond to climate change? And that will create some interesting things in terms of possibly bringing back other species of coffee that previously weren't used because they were unproductive or, you know, by which I mean they had lower yields or they were considered originally not to have such great tastes, but which I suspect we will see uh, and feed I know is going on that we're having programs both to grow those new species but also to create new varietals that blend as it were that, that hybridize between arabicas and some of these other species in order to create more climate resistant coffee do you see uh, a continuation of efforts to be organic fair trade look for specific coffee growers where conditions for the workers might be better than others Yes, I do. And I hope that we will start thinking about that, let's say, more effectively over the whole sort of panoply of things that we need to consider. I'm a bit disturbed by some of the ways that coffee is marketed at the moment. I was on a, a, a show yesterday where I was being asked about research that said that instant coffee was the best for the environment. That was all based on a sort of a calculation of, you know, if you, you use this energy when you're brewing your cup of instant coffee, which is great, but actually takes in, doesn't take into account any of the stuff that we've just talked about. Where was the coffee actually grown? What conditions was it grown in? Was it grown in a shade-based conditions, in which case it's definitely going to be more environmentally friendly? Was it grown organically, which could mean that you would get you know, less uh, damage to the environment? And who grew it? And what were they paid for it? All of those things seem to me to matter in the overall notion of what is sustainable about coffee. I hope that we are going to be more appreciative of that. And my biggest worry, if I, if I can say, is that we'll lose sight of the coffee growers. Because it's easier for us to change the varietals that we use and to go and plant them in places that are a bit different than it is for us to keep compensating the people who grow coffee at the moment. It's a great value to have you kind of raise these issues and talk about how, how important they are and for people to hear this because people are going to keep drinking coffee. I am. And if we can take, if we can think about that in the context of taking a good step or two, I think that's only a positive. I absolutely think people should drink coffee and I really would like them to drink good coffee. And um, what makes you know, lots of things make good coffee. Your taste experience makes for good coffee, but also thinking about those other issues makes for good coffee too. So when we found those, you know, when we bring those things together, we get a great cup of coffee and we enjoy it and we're doing good. This has been a great conversation. In the interest of time, I'll ask you offline about how I can make a better espresso. <laughs> In the meantime, I will just say thank you for your time. 
this is a topic that we could talk about for a very long time. It's great. And I would love to give you some more coaching on espresso as much as I can. <laughs> We're going to do that. Okay. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. A cup of China, a silver spoon, cream out of a golden can. See that pot? Uh, it's percolating. And it's just like music from a band These old bones, they're tired and weary But man, you can perk them up again Give me coffee, 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 coffee I guarantee that you have found yourself a friend Yes, sir, you have found yourself a friend I guarantee that you have found yourself a friend.